0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of "Dr. Dark After Dark: Number eight. So this time we're going to cover well, it's a follow-up from the last uh, episode on quantum mechanics and small stuff. We're going to do relativity and big stuff. So this is the, um, kind of the, the, the second of the two great physics theories of the 20th century, um, which, of course, you know, Einstein was the architect, but not the only person involved. Um, And then in the uh, subsequent episode, we can start talking about how these theories might be combined. But let's get some of the basic stuff done. It's all interesting stuff. Um, So relativity really has uh, two parts to it. First of all, there was special relativity, uh, which was first published in 1905. As I mentioned before, this was Einstein's Annus Mirabilis, where he had four remarkable papers which one could argue all were worthy of nobel prizes and as and as i still think probably the greatest year of any scientist ever in terms of impact um, and and then general relativity followed up 8 to 10 years later depending on your point of view now special relativity um really was this was the the first time where Einstein had pulled everything together to show that this concept of space time so instead of having three spatial dimensions which we all are very aware of so left right up down and then near and far th- the idea that actually you don't have three spatial dimensions and time it's actually space time it's one of the same thing um, and so if in effect if you're um, yeah, so if you're if you're moving in space, you have to give a little bit of time. This is where the the whole concepts of time dilation and length contraction start to come from. So special relativity gave us, in effect, the most famous equation E equals MC squared. Uh, Einstein didn't write it like that. Uh, he wrote it M equals E over C squared. Uh, he didn't even write it like that because he used different terminology. But that's in effect what he said. Um, i.e. the mass equals energy divided by the speed of light squared. Now, the special relativity um, was also... In effect, it, it didn't... It, it solved the problem that had come up, um, I think, in 1887, around then. There's a famous experiment by Michelson and Morley. Uh, called the Mickelson-Morley experiment where people thought that there was some form of kind of ether ether, ether out there um, that would mean that if you measured the speed of light in the three different spatial dimensions uh, then it could well have different speeds. Now in 1887, which is pretty cool, they showed uh, very much that this, the speed of light in, in all three perpendicular directions that you have in the three-dimensional world was identical. And so in effect, their experiment came out of a negative result. It was the same. And one, one of the, you know, there's two key postulations of special relativity, which again, don't really sound like much, but they, they do lead to very interesting implications. First of all, which um, mickelson morley agreed with the Michelson morley experiment is uh, the speed of light. So it's how fast photons travel in a vacuum is the same for all observers. And it's one of the things you've got to get your head around when we're talking about relativity is the concept of an observer. So that's someone who's in effect watching, looking at um, a system. Now in quantum mechanics, of course, an observer can affect the system, which is kind of interesting as well. Uh, And the second core thing is that so laws of physics so the laws of physics are the same for all observers in any reference frame um so and this is where you, you get the term relativity everything's so the laws of physics are the same but you're always looking at uh, in any reference frame there's there's basically a relative points of view things are relative to each other not necessarily an absolute for example we're on the earth um you might think you're not moving um, relative to the car that I'm looking at on the road moving well we're both moving Um, I may not be moving relative to the chair I'm sitting on and the bus that just went by is moving relative to me but the earth is whizzing around the sun incredibly quickly the earth is rotating the galaxy is rotating the galaxy is moving so everything becomes relative so yeah. You know, whilst in more subsequent theories, string theory, you know, we've gone from three spatial dimensions up to uh, 10. Uh, but although one dimension of time has remained. There are some more fringe theories that have more dimensions of time um, that whilst might have some mathematical consistency, they don't, uh, they haven't really, there's just zero evidence that they're true, right? And at the end of the day, we have to be evidence-based. Um, but special relativity is really what... Um, introduced the world to the concept of space-time. So weird things happen with it. So you may have heard the concepts of time dilation and length contraction. It's basically the same thing, but the more famous one is time dilation because it's just more easy to think about, or the not necessarily to think about, to think of the implications of. So, for example, um, You may have heard that moving clocks tick more slowly. This is compared to the observer's stationary clock. Again, what we're saying here is that, and by the way, you can have multiple observers. Some are moving, some are not. And later on, we'll talk about acceleration. They're all seeing clocks move at different speeds. This suggests time is not absolute. And as far as we know, there is no concept of Kind of universal absolute time in the universe. We we define time. well, actually, by um, it's actually by oscillations of a cesium atom. <laughs> um, but, but by by having a periodic thing. I this is a vibration of an atom, um, and counting it, and however many billion trillion oscillations there are per second, that's a second. That's that's how a modern atomic clock measures time. Maybe even got better than that now. Um, but there is no kind of concept in the universe of well, there's there's no like thing that defines time. You know, we've defined it, and we have this thing called the second. Um, and it, of course, it it fits. And you know, and maths allows us to uh, you know to use time to model how and to predict how systems will evolve. But really, the the kind of the time of the universe is a thing called entropy, uh, which, again, this is where some people's eyes start to glaze over. It's just a measure of um, a disorder, you know. And so, if it, the the classic way to think of it is, you've got a bunch of particles in a box. Is it likely that they're all going to be? They're all flying around. It's a gas, right? Are they all going to suddenly be in? one corner of the box the box has eight corners are they all just going to be there and nothing else in the rest of the box or are they going to be a pretty universally distributed randomly well the answer is the latter it's it's possible for them to all be in one one tiny area of the box but it's incredibly unlikely and so what happens is you tend to get um uh, entropy increasing over time and that increase in entropy i mean we're going to talk at the end about the potential heat death of the universe and what this means from an entropy perspective but it's, it's a very um, powerful um, concept, not least one that is, you know, was known about, um, not fully understood, but you know, a long time ago in terms of the efficiency of um, heat engines and you know, other, other cool stuff. We're talking about 19th century. So moving clocks uh, tick more slowly and the faster you're going, the closer you're going towards the speed of light, the more slowly they tick for the observer that's not moving relative to you. Now, by the way, you could say you're not moving and that observer is moving, and so you will see their clock ticking more slowly. This leads to the famous twins paradox, which we'll talk about in a bit. And by the way, to have a, I mean, it's actually pretty simple math, and there's plenty of YouTube channels that derive this. Uh, It's actually not crazy maths. If you wanna derive time dilation and length contraction, it can be done. It's just Pythagoras' theorem. Um, And and you end up getting a square root of 1 minus v squared over c squared, where um, v is your velocity. So so if you just do the math on that, there's not much of effect until you're traveling at, you know, a decent proportionate speed of light. So if you're traveling at 1% of the speed of light, v squared over c squared is, well, that's a 10,000th. 1 minus that, yeah, it's hardly, it's tiny, tiny, tiny. But if you're traveling uh, 90% the speed of light, then it's, uh, it's it's a large effect of roughly 80%. Your time would be five times slower. Again, if that math doesn't make sense, just go and work it out. Like, I think I was listening to a great podcast the other day with, um, yeah, it was with Eric Weinstein. Oh, God, I'm going to get it wrong. Weinstein. Weinstein? Oh, no. He's the one that's always said, oh, it's, it's the same as Einstein. So it's Weinstein. There we go. Yeah, his point is no one ever says Einstein. So Eric Weinstein, who does the Portal podcast and is a a mathematician, has come out with an interesting theory of geometric um, gravity recently. Um, But his point is like, everyone always wants you to describe things simply. Well, some things aren't simple, sorry. Some things need maths, or for Americans, math. Um, And... uh, what I just described in the calculation I just did in my head, anyone can do that that understands Pythagoras' theorem, which anyone that did school maths can do. As in, I mean, you learn that when you're, what, 16 or younger? Um, now, if if people want to dive more into math and, and to understand uh, Einstein's field equations, Dirac equation, this type of stuff, um, then actually what you need to do is probably read Roger Penrose's book Um, the road to reality it's sort of a book written for no one because if you're a physicist it's kind of too easy you should know it if you're a layman it has enough maths that you're probably going to be scared by it and not read it so it's not trying to be um, a, a book accessible to everyone you have to work at the maths and you might have to study a bit but if you want to understand this stuff that's what you've got to do you can't So I'm going to, at the end, describe Hawking radiation in two different ways. But neither is how Hawking described it in 1974 in his paper, which was from his PhD. Um, Because the only way to understand it is to understand the maths. And this is, by the way, where string theory struggles is. As soon as you want to get anywhere from, well, not least the fact it might just not be true at all, but maybe it is, but. Um, that's a separate whole podcast. But um, to just dive into it a little bit, you've suddenly into really, really hard maths. So time dilation, so moving clocks tick more slowly. um, And this is very related and it's basically the same thing as length contraction. So if you're moving really fast, you actually seem that you're shorter. So yes, a ruler would seem to be shorter um, for the observer that's not moving. Likewise, you could say you're not moving and then the observer's ruler, because you're the observer of the observer, and their ruler's shorter. And you say, well, that doesn't make any sense. How can it be different? But that's the whole point. Everything's relative. It's not absolute. By the way, and even if you're moving at one mile an hour versus someone else, there's still a teeny-weeny, teeny weeny-weeny, weeny-weeny effect. I mean, we'll talk about general relativity in a bit, but it's a good place that you know we have measured the difference in um the um earth's gravitational field and therefore the time uh, that elapses in a lab between just like a one meter difference from closer and further away from the center of the earth you can measure time incredibly accurately so and so the, you know, the key thing that comes out of special relativity is that the speed of light is finite. So it's 3 times 10 to the 8 meters per second. Well, that's just using meters per second as your units. Um, the speed of light is almost always set to 1 uh, in physics equations. Um, often it cancels. It just, it doesn't matter what you set it to, right? Because it's it, units are arbitrary. You, you can do it in, uh, you know, feet per minute or miles per hour well miles per second is one hundred eighty-seven thousand miles per second that's a good one to 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 remember that's about eight times around the earth a second that's just another interesting one to remember but it's the maximum speed for massive objects so a massive object doesn't mean a big object it just means any object with mass or any particle with mass so if if we again go back to what we talked about the standard model last time um, we're ba- if we ignore the funky stuff, we're made of um, up quarks, down quarks and electrons. That's it. They all have a mass. They may be very small, but they do have a mass. And because they have a mass, they can't travel at the speed of light because you would need infinite energy to get there. And infinite anything is always bad in physics. Not necessarily always bad in maths, but, but in physical systems it tends to be bad. Now, likewise, if you therefore don't have a mass, so like a photon, you can have energy, but you don't have to have mass. Um, because e equals mc squared isn't really the full equation, because you actually have a momentum version of it, uh, a component as well. So it, 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 <laughs> it, everyone likes to simplify things and so e equals mc squared is what you, you you hear about but it's really not the equation again um i, I don't suggest reading einstein's original paper because it's in german uh, unless you read german but there are translations so they're not long papers so this was 1905 and then um then, then he started working on a uh, what became general relativity now most people would say that was 1915 or so when that was published i can make an argument it was 1913 um, when he made the first did the first paper that really showed uh, basically a, a geometric mathematical a geometric interpretation of curved space-time um and what he's adding in from special relativity is how uh, acceleration so um If you notice before, we were talking about traveling at a speed. We weren't talking about accelerating to that speed. And that makes things more complicated. So general relativity, which adds acceleration into it, um, adds some very interesting um, uh, other dynamics, like um, so gravitational time dilation. So in interstellar, lots of people probably saw it. Do you remember that scene where Some dude is above this planet, and then they go down a couple of them onto the planet for a couple of hours, and it's they're in this ocean, right? And it's um, the planet's like super duper big, and actually the 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 gravity there would be very very high, um, because the mass of the planet's very big, and um, yeah, basically know, twenty years would ever pass for the person. I can't remember what it was uh, for the person orbiting, but these guys on the planet like two hours passes, and this again is relative to each other. And because one ages, actually you would actually see the difference. So we've done that experiment, right? This is, people think it's science fiction. No, 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 no. We have clocks, atomic clocks, that have been put on a plane, flown around the world. So basically you take two atomic clocks, super, super duper accurate. You synchronize them. You leave one where it is, let's say in my chair. You take the other one, onto a plane you fly it around the world bring it back to the chair and you see if they say the same time and they won't now there's actually two different effects one because you've been traveling around the world so there's a speed effect and then there's the effect that you've been um uh because you're actually uh, a plane flies at an elevation of let's say thirty thousand feet so you're further away from the center of the earth uh, these are actually counter effects so overall um i think in, in yeah the the, the clock that's gone round um is uh actually i think the gravitational one outweighs the speed one for this for these numbers so actually the clock would have gone a bit faster but that's because of the gravitational effect too because you're further away from the center of the earth if you're in uh, but, but we've done this and literally to the nearest like femtosecond whatever it is it, it's exactly what relativity says it should be so it's pretty cool like as i said before like Special and general relativity, well, and quantum mechanics. These things have been measured like so many hundreds, indeed thousands, of different ways. Not one time have they been shown to be inaccurate, as of yet. Like I said before, at Gran Sasso, when they thought they had found something going faster than the speed of light, it ended up being literally a, um, a, a a connector in the system that was wobbly and not transmitting the data correctly. So that was slightly embarrassing for the several hundred people involved in that one um so also general relativity uh so let's just say it came out in the mid-19-teens it was also categorically proven very very quickly by arthur eddington in 1919 with a solar eclipse and uh The whole point was that light, uh, general relativity would mean that light from distant stars would be bent by the sun uh, because the sun is a big mass and therefore it would seem to, because light travels in a straight line, um, when you're in the earth, you would therefore, uh, but actually, so so if there's no eclipse, it's in one place because the sun's not in the way and then when the sun's in the way, it should be bent a little bit by the sun, so you should see a star in a different place. Uh, Remarkably, this was done in 1919 and they could measure it accurately enough. Um, And it exactly proved Einstein was right, like remarkable. This is very difficult these days. Um, One of the issues in physics, and again, there's different points of view here, um, is that if, let's take Peter Higgs and colleagues. Um, So, you know, the Higgs boson, Higgs field really, was postulated in the 60s as a way to uh, give massive particles some form of uh, mass when they interacted with, with the Higgs field. And this took... Fifty years for it to be experimentally verified. It eventually, was in two thousand and twelve. Well, Peter Higgs is, I think, in his eighties now. Now he was lucky that his prediction was proven in his lifetime. He got a Nobel Prize. The problem is, is that the theories are getting so beyond experimental um, capabilities that if it's much more than fifty years, right, on average, to to prove something that's been theoretically Uh, predicted basically the time's getting longer and longer einstein was proven in three years (laughs) it's very quick um now it's taking longer you know longer and longer and longer and longer and longer because the theories are kind of almost got ahead of experimentation but experimentation where um you know because with the help of computers theories and just ability to compute has obviously roughly doubled every two years in terms of Moore's law. But experiments can't double every two years in in, in the energies they can probe because, again, very quickly you're going to get, well, for example, to test string theory, you'd need a particle accelerator roughly the size of our galaxy, which is like 100,000 light years um, across. It's kind of a little bit beyond us. So there is sort of this issue in physics that, uh, now maybe one could argue that people have, Coming up with theories and they're not testable, so that's sort of pointless. Um but then they would argue back saying, well, maybe they're right. And of course string theory is at the heart of all this. And again, one can argue about that for a long time. But it's I think it's not controversial to say that physics community has put a lot of chips in the string theory basket. Um and yeah. And and, and actually other theories should be more uh celebrated and they may well be right. So, okay, so we talked about proof of general relativity. Um, And so really here, what you've got to understand are the Einstein field equations, and they showed a topology of space time. So there's um, a really good YouTube video that derives general relativity equations. It takes a few hours. Um, You probably have to watch it a few times, but you can get there. is it Dr. Physics A? I'm t- I, maybe it's not him, but th- th- there's a British um, guy that does it. I'm sure if you just Google it, you can find it. Um, but again, it's it's not, it is the maths. It's not assuming you know no maths. But you know, again, like these things, if you, someone told me once, you know, if you don't understand a sentence, well, okay, here's a sentence. I don't understand five of the words in it. Okay, well, go and find out what each one means it's the same with maps if you don't understand something there's a million resources online for you to understand it there are very few things that don't have good resources online for free to understand so so general relativity look again there's there's, i don't really know of anyone that's like well this isn't true because um well i guess flat earthers whatever but Although I think most of them are just trolls, by the way. They just find it funny. (laughs) Um, But the GPS system is probably the most famous, where because the satellite uh, is um, above, um, it's in a geostationary orbit, which is uh, many, 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 many miles, thousands of miles above the Earth, you have to um, correct for the fact that um, yeah, you're further away from the center of the Earth. And your time is therefore going to be running um differently to those on the earth and if you didn't make that correction it's called a relativistic correction uh, the gps system would pretty much instantly be completely inaccurate and it's amazing right it's accurate to like a foot <laughs> or like under a meter um it would in- very very quickly be completely and utterly useless because um and after a few days it would be i think it was yeah, becomes kilometers then thousands of kilometers out because of course over time the, the the difference builds up okay so that gets us to the kind of twins paradox which is probably the most famous um paradox in when you talk about relativity i talked to my six-year-old about it Yeah, you know, if uh him and i get on a rocket and travel long, long, long away from the Earth for several years uh, and then come back to Earth. Then his brother and his mum, well, his younger brother will be older than him. And this is true. And it's like, well, wait a minute. If you're twins, how can possibly, well, how can you, an older brother become younger (laughs) than his younger brother? Well, again, it's all about relativity. So in terms of biological time, yes, uh, he comes back and his younger brother would appear older than him. Um, but then the argument and the paradox is that, well, wait a minute. Just because I travelled somewhere in my ship, um, couldn't the person, so I've, I've been travelling, but, but couldn't you the person on Earth that stays there say, but I've actually travelled really far away and you, you stayed still relative to me. So, I should have aged less, and this is called the twins paradox. Um, And it gets resolved. It can be resolved with special relativity alone without acceleration. But the the normal explanation is that um, the person on the rocket that's gone away from the earth has then had to turn around and come back towards the earth. Now they've accelerated away to get up to speed and they've gone near the speed of light, they've slowed down, that's another acceleration. They've had to turn around, that's another acceleration. They've accelerated towards the Earth, this breaks the symmetry. And then according to general relativity, yes, then it becomes clear that the uh, the person that's undergone those accelerations is the one that's going to have had the, um, uh, in effect, slowed down their time. Again, it's another thing that you need to dive into the maths to really get into it. And, um, but it, again, like this is, if we could do the experiment, it is true. We've in effect done the experiment with atomic clocks. It's just, that doesn't really grab your imagination because an atomic clocks, just like, you know, the size of a cardboard box or a bit bigger, well, you can get them about the size of a normal size storage box and you can pick it up and, but just no one cares what it is, right? It's much more visceral to see if we could really do an experiment with identical twins, how cool would that be? Now we actually know it would be true i I don't think there's any credible physicist that thinks it wouldn't be uh and would you know, and you would see one of the twins the twin come back to be younger, but we can't travel fast enough so even if we um so like i said we um speed of light is what hundred and eighty um so hundred and eighty seven thousand miles per second, so if we put it into miles an hour, we have to times it by uh so 3,600. Let's just say a thousand. Well, times it by three, we get to about a million. Times. So it's about a billion um, miles an hour. Well, we can travel at... um Slightly under that. The fastest space rocket we've ever done, I think, goes to about 40,000 miles an hour. So versus a billion miles an hour. Okay, so 0.1% of a billion is a million. So 0.01%. Is 100,000, so we've done about 0.004% speed of light, roughly. Nowhere near. But if you traveled at that speed for long enough time, yes, there would be a tiny, tiny, tiny change in your time relative to your twin. But again, you, you really got to get to a, you know, to see significant effects, you've you got to get way beyond kind of about a quarter of the speed of light. Okay, so that's kind of relativity very quickly. Um, And I wanted to quickly touch on the first, pretty sure it's the first place where relativity and quantum mechanics sort of meshed together. Um, And this is called Hawking radiation. So this is what Stephen Hawking uh, was, was his most famous piece of work in the physics community. Uh, he was—he realised that in a black hole, where previously they were thought of um, as these basically huge, massive objects, they basically have three numbers associated with them. Someone said once a black hole has no hair, they haven't. They're, they're very boring in some ways. Now we sort of know they're not now because they can have giant jets coming off them, all sorts of stuff. But but if you know the mass of the black hole, its charge, and its spin, it's all the three numbers you need to know. And if you know those three numbers, I think I'm right in saying that any black hole should basically be the same as any other that had the same three numbers. Um, but Hawking realized that at the event horizon, some funky stuff can happen. So the event horizon is where, at the escape velocity, so what does that mean? So if you're on Earth, you need to be traveling at about, um what is it, 11,000 meters per second? So about 11, that's 11 kilometers per second or so, um, to have enough velocity to escape the gravitational pull of the Earth forever more. So if you travel at that speed and just aim your rocket in any direction, (laughs) um, then you will not orbit the Earth, you will fly away from the Earth and escape it. Um, And that's the speed we have to get to um, when when space rockets go into Earth, uh, into orbit. Um, to escape from the Earth's field Um, and um, now for a black hole the whole point of a black hole is that that escape velocity becomes the speed of light and we've said anything with mass cannot travel at the speed of light and therefore if there's a point of a black hole because there's so much mass, this is one of the very first in fact it was the first solution to Einstein's equations by Schwarzschild um, showed that this kind of black hole should exist which kind of people thought was crazy they thought "Oh, this can't be right of course now we've even imaged one as we did a couple of years ago which is amazing um so the event horizon of a black hole is uh remember black holes are three-dimensional object um so it's uh it's the surface of a sphere uh, where uh, anything that is closer so on that surface or below towards the center of the black hole, nothing can escape once it goes there. So it's not like a... If you if you fell through, so you can have black holes that are as big as our solar system or bigger, right? Supermassive black holes. And let's just say the event horizon was the equivalent of the um, orbit of Pluto, right? Um, I won't use Neptune's orbit because it's slightly funky. Anyways, Um you would have no clue that you've if you crossed that orbit, you would have zero clue that you have just crossed, and you could never get out again. You would just keep flying, and you would, you, know, you could orbit that. You could just be orbiting for forever. Yeah, you know, the mass is in the center, and you've got a, a velocity. You go around it. As I always say, like if our sun was a black hole with the mass of the sun, the Earth would rotate around the sun in the perfectly normal way. Now, we wouldn't have any light, so we'd all die. It would be very cold. But, you know, we, black holes don't suck, right? That's just kind of mainstream media saying this because it's easy. people think it's easy to understand. It, it's just gravitational attraction. It doesn't matter if it's in a, a tiny, tiny, tiny... So if the sun was the size of, I think, uh, Manhattan, it would be a black hole, something like that. Um, but again, if, if the sun's mass is in a ball the size of Manhattan or the size of the sun, which is a million times bigger than the Earth. It doesn't matter when it comes to the gravity that we feel on Earth. So what Stephen Hawking did was he showed that at this event horizon, um, special things can happen because you can actually have quantum mechanical effects. Um, And this is the first time that they have been kind of merged with gravity. So, you know, the big question in physics is how, well, maybe the question shouldn't be, How do you merge quantum mechanics and relativity? Maybe that's the wrong question. Often asking the right question is the most important thing, but they are the two kind of great theories, quote unquote, great theories of the 20th century. Um, And so Hawking, now the, and therefore Hawking showed that black holes should radiate a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of energy. And it is really tiny. So the background radiation called the afterglow of creation that we have mapped three times now with increasing accuracy is roughly from memory three degrees kelvin so minus 269 degrees celsius so in effect that's the baseline temperature in the universe and as the universe expands its temperature decreases towards absolute zero and we'll come to that later um, so there's a sort of a noise in the universe of three degrees kelvin well, Hawking radiation for a normal black hole, uh, it will be of the order of like a millionth of a Kelvin. So if you were looking at black hole, you could never detect that millionth of a Kelvin because just the noise in the, um, the the background radiation is, is far larger than that. And whilst the cosmic background radiation is quite consistent about one part in a hundred thousand, you could, you still could never detect. So we've, So, for example, when we image the black hole, there's no possible way of using that to detect Hawking radiation. There have been some experiments that have tried to recreate sort of black holes-like objects on the Earth that happened last year, which are interesting, but probably beyond the scope of this one. So the classic explanation of Hawking radiation, which um, is uh, not... Well, I'm going to give two explanations. Neither is how he described it in his paper. because it's mathematical <laughs> so again you have to understand the maths so the first one is the one that you hear 99 point nine percent of the time which is that um, like we talked about last time the universe is made of fields quantum fields quantum field theory is all about fields so there's an electron field a, a electron value electron field everywhere in the universe and every point of the universe is a value. Um, Let's just say it's zero in most places, but where it spikes, that's where you have an electron. The field can, um, that value in the field can move like a, a wave across the field, that's an electron moving. Um, there's a top quark field, a bottom quark field, a Higgs field, etc. cetera. Um, so that means that if you imagine the event horizon, so sorry, in these fields, what can happen, and again, this has been shown um, I think it's the Casimir effect, that you can have things called virtual particles. So because of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which we touched on last time, you're allowed to sort of borrow a bit of energy and therefore some mass from the quantum field. As long as you give it back quick enough that based on the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, you, you, you basically haven't violated that. Um, so what happens, so there's no such thing as nothing. Really, if you look, if you could magnify, magnify is kind of a bad word, but if you could look close enough at what's going on in a quote-unquote vacuum, really it's a whole party of these what are called virtual particles being made. So you might get a um, a, a a photon, um, or electron and positron, right? It's antiparticle, right? Created. Uh, and then they can annihilate with each other, and if that happens fast enough, you haven't violated any um, rules, which is, i.e., you haven't created any energy out of nothing, because they they annihilate back, and you're 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 kind of you've squared it off. Um, and so at the event horizon, one explanation is you can get a virtual, so let a particle-antiparticle pair. Um let's say electron postron and or photon anti photon like and basically um that's exactly at the horizon they the, the, they're physically slightly separated when they're created one is inside the horizon one is outside the horizon um one can therefore escape one can't escape because something's escaped from the black hole in effect, it must have lost some mass. And Therefore, that's the radiation, and eventually black holes will evaporate. Um, for a, a black hole that is of the order of this, uh, if our sun was a black hole, I think you'd be talking something like 10 to the 50 years for it to evaporate, and for the largest black holes, maybe 10 to 100 years. That's 10 with 100 zeros, so that's like, um, yeah, not, or well, a 100 zeros. Not, not going to happen in the famous number of Google. Um, not going to happen quickly. So this is like um, one explanation. There's another one, uh, which is um, which I heard first from Dr. Paul Sutter, who does Ask a Spaceman, which is a great podcast, uh, which is more based upon fields. Uh, as I said before in the last episode, we live in a universe of fields, not of particles. Particles come from, they're emergent from the fields. So basically, it goes that when you have a formation of a black hole, um, that the, um, the and the event horizon is just forming, it's going to be interacting with quantum fields, right? Because quantum fields are everywhere. And so some of the fields, when the black hole is formed, are right at the edge of that event horizon. And therefore, it means that because of time dilation that we spoke about before, so any particles near that event horizon, so any excitations in that field that are near the event horizon, because of time dilation, that in effect their time from our, where we're observing the system from afar, is gonna be slowed down gigantically by the gravity of the black hole. Now at the event horizon, in effect, it looks like they've frozen, slowed down forever. Now for the actual particle, it's, it's just a click of a finger, right? it's an instant, right? Because from its perspective, it's, uh, nothing's been slowed down. <laughs> um, but in effect, from us looking at it from afar, i.e. observing the radiation, these particles um, are gonna, whether it takes them a day or a million years or a billion years or a hundred billion years to escape, they eventually escape the black hole. Not escaping from inside the black hole, but just at the boundary when it's formed. Um, and it can take, um, and the closer they were to the event horizon, the longer and longer and longer and longer it could take to escape. And that's the Hawking radiation. And so in effect, you're sort of quote-unquote promoting uh, some of the, uh, the 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 temporary vibrations of virtual particles to permanent ones. Um, again, this is just another way of looking at it. The real explanation is uh, and also he also showed that which is i think super cool that the most maximum amount of energy you can so basically the maximum entropy of a black hole is to do with its area not its volume this is then related to how much information you can get into um, a black hole or indeed ultimately a universe uh, which then gets us into the holographic principle some super cool stuff. The big argument Hawking, in effect, lost against Susskind eventually um, about information paradox. You can't destroy information. Uh, Susskind won the argument, ultimately. Hawking did admit that. Um, but again, it was like a 20-year or something crazy argument. Uh, more of discussion. And it was, you know, um, because of Hawking's brilliant questions and theories, it, it, it completely shifted the way... Um, yeah, people think about um, what the universe really could be. So if you if you look up the holographic principle, this is all kind of very interesting stuff. But again, really hard to. Again, you could watch World Science Festival, watch watch people like Raphael Bousso talk about this. But again, it's all very like unsatisfactory because there's no maths in it. Um, it you know, it's 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 not something. Yes, there's some interesting concepts, but once you've heard the concepts, to, to dig deeper, you suddenly have to kind of cross the chasm of the maths. So like we said, you know, so large black holes um, can live up to 10 to the 100 years. Long time. Um, but way anyway, you can have tiny black holes. So like, you, theoretically uh, you could, people well, when the LHC was turned on, right, you had this whole conspiracy theory that it would create a black hole that would swallow up the earth and and of course, physicists are great because they're like, well, no, it's not going to because Hawking radiation will just mean those tiny black holes will last like uh, literally a, a femtosecond." And then, of course, media is like, oh, but also oh, Hawking radiation has been proven to be correct. And of course, physicists are like, well, no, I mean, you can't prove it because we, we can't experimentally measure it. But we know that would happen. It's fine. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> of course, what the physicist should have said to it was kind of hilarious, and you got some real doomsday articles written. I mean, of course, the the much better explanation would be you do realize we're bombarded constantly by cosmic cosmic rays with actually far higher energies um, than we're going to create in the LHC, where you're getting particles to photons, sorry, um, protons to roughly point, what was it ninety nine point nine 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 one percent of the speed of light, something like that. Um, and by the way, these cosmic rays hit the earth like literally constantly and they're not creating black holes, so that are engulfing the earth. So just please chill out. So I'm sure the scientists knew that, but they—it it's sort of hilarious what was written back in um, whenever it was turned on, 2010, 11. Um, but it is kind of funny that it's a bit like uh, the Higgs field, um, if that, in some ways it would have been more interesting if it wasn't found or indeed categorically ruled out by the LHC because when it was found it was within the parameters that were expected it's just another brick in the wall for the standard model even though we know the standard model doesn't explain everything so it's kind of the other problem in physics standard model so ridiculously successful that people are just dying to have results that, that disagree with something in it um because we know it's not, well, actually, that's not true. Um, we don't have, it doesn't emerge from another th- proven theory yet. Um, anyways, this kind of gets us, interestingly enough, to how the universe ends. Um, so, my six year old asked me quite often what happened before the Big Bang, and it's a question that many kids ask and adults too, and it's a good question, and it's a question we don't have an answer to. There are theories, uh, there are even of view that it's a nonsensical question because if time started then there was nothing before um, maybe we're in infinite universes there's there's all sorts of you know, we won't go into it now but just an interesting question or maybe it's a boring question is how does our universe end let's just assume there's one universe for now well and this is where entropy comes back so like he said you know the second law of thermodynamics is that systems tend to increase the entropy level of disorder um and you may think to human beings um somehow get away from this but it, it's not true because you're constantly breathing and there's stuff basically going out of you and you're contributing to entropy so um i mean one way to think of it is you would you would get younger if you were kind of because as you get older you, you, the entropy of you it is increasing there's more chaos in your cells and stuff it's kind of interesting concept and so we've never found a um, an enclosed system where um, entropy is decreased I think there are some really funky things people can do with lasers these days that kind of try and reverse time Um, but it's completely like remember that entropy is a statistical thing it's not relevant at one molecule doing something you you need millions or billions or trillions of molecules that that's the whole point it's statistical um and so what happens with the universe is so as we said last time in the late 90s 98 observations suggested that the universe was expanding at an increasing rate so rate so getting faster accelerating this is when dark energy was and the cosmological constant that einstein had said was his biggest blunder um, which is just a constant his equations that he got rid of once then put back in um, may well be real we don't know what it is but in effect it's dark energy um, not to be confused with dark matter it's really really stupid that they have similar names people think they're related that they're really well they're related in that we don't know what they are <laughs> um, but um, dark uh, for the universe to be, uh, well, dark matter, of course, has a gravitational uh, attraction. Um, so it would not be making the universe expand faster. In fact, quite the opposite. So dark energy has some. there's something in space-time that has this repulsive nature that theoretically or possibly as the universe gets larger, this dark energy gets larger and therefore makes space-time um, expand faster. Now, this then leads to the question, well, okay, um so what so you could have what's called the big rip um where you basically tear space time apart it's expanding so fast um and there's all sorts of like funky stuff that can then happen um can create uh, use the energy to create uh new uh particles and start things again and it's interesting i think that's broadly subscribed to um so this cosmological constant we spoke about, so the observations from the late 90s suggest it's positive. Now, in the units, it's like this teeny-weeny, tiny-tiny number, but it doesn't matter. What matters is, it zero, positive, or negative? Um, yeah, zero would kind of mean a um, yeah constant expansion of the universe. Current observations and by the way, in ten years there might be a satellite that does something else that says, Oh no, you know what, that stuff was wrong. Um that maybe was a problem in these measurements. Um, although, yeah, that's not I think they've also been repeated in other ways. So it's a bit like the cosmic background radiation. What's amazing about it, it was first done with what, Kobe, I think, in um uh, the late 80s, and you had WMAP in the late 90s or so, or two, early 2000s, and you had Planck in a 2000, and whenever it was, 12 or so. And these three different, so each time they, let's just say they got 10 times higher resolution, it was like something like that. But the maps, you can you put them on top of each other, and you can tell they're the same. It's pretty cool. Well, now, there's more resolution on the later ones, but it's pretty phenomenal. Um, so I think the most widely subscribed theory to how the universe ends is it in effect doesn't, but it sort of does. Because if it just keeps expanding, what happens is entropy just keeps going up and up and up and up and up. That background temperature keeps going down and down and down and down and down until it asymptotically approaches absolute zero. Black holes ultimately evaporate. Now there's questions, do protons decay? We know if you have a neutron on its own, it decays with a half-life of about 11 minutes. It's been known for quite a long time. Big question in physics is, do protons decay? They should decay eventually. Right now, uh, the minimum half-life is, I think, 10 to the 31 years. It could be even higher than that now. Um, Basically, there are experiments looking at this. We've never witnessed a proton decay, as far as we know. Um, But assuming they have to decay at some point, then um ultimately everything is decaying even the black hole into just energy which then gets smeared across an ever-expanding universe temperature gets basically to within a billionth of a degree of absolute zero a trillionth of a degree a quadrillionth of a degree down and down and down and down and there's just nothing you know, protons decayed there's no matter there's no earth there's no nothing there's no light um really in the universe uh, i mean yes you'd have photons but they're going to have wavelengths that are so long an energy so low that that's where you ultimately get to—just a massive nothingness. Still, theoretically, kind of time. Um, but yeah. Now, it's a pretty depressing way to end. <laughs> this is, you know, a long, 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 long way ahead. Um, whether it's uh, ten to the hundred years or much, much longer. Well, in effect, it will go on. Now, of course, there are kind of more fun things where cosmological, yeah, cosmological constant changes. We we stop expanding, we start contracting. We have um, big crunch and another big bang, and it goes on forever. Or, yeah, you know, of course, all the multiverse theories. You know that we, you know, every time there's a quantum mechanical well, a measurement of a of a, of a quantum mechanical system, universe splits into different answers. Like these are all kind of cool things. But there's no evidence that, uh, as of now, that cosmological constant is negative. People that think it may have been in the past, uh, especially in times of inflation, lots of cool stuff. Um, But as I explained to my six-year-old, like, you know, you know, not knowing is, um, yeah, there are good questions that we don't know the answer to and there's nothing wrong with that okay i'm going to leave it at that thanks very much for your time